Today on More Than a Test, we are joined by Dr. Baker Jones. Dr. Baker Jones is the very first Chief Equity and Social Justice Officer at Atlanta Public Schools. She's also the first woman to hold a chief office in schools in Georgia. She is incredible and a force that's going to make you feel like, okay, I could do a little more and be a little better. She's going to tell you about a principal who changed her life and the way that she is changing lives in Georgia. This is a great conversation. Don't miss it. Dr. Baker Jones, thank you for being here today. I know you just started school. I actually started like just a minute was talking to you and I was like, oh, when do you start? Like it's two weeks from now, but you actually started last week. Is that right? I did. Thank you, Laura, for having me. I'm really excited to join you on the podcast today, but you are absolutely correct. School started on August 1st and things, as you know, in the beginning of the year are going nonstop, but we're gearing up for a very exciting year and a very, uh, a, a lot of momentum is, is being picked up. Um, and it was great to see the kiddos come back to school with so much joy and so much anticipation for what's ahead. Oh, good. I'm glad that they're feeling excited. I know for me, I, I, I like mourn the la loss of summer, but it sounds like they're <laughs> thrilled to be back at school. And you serve as the chief equity and social justice officer, the first ever. This role did not exist before in Atlanta Public Schools. Is that right? That is correct. Yep. So it's interesting because yesterday I was on uh, the podcast with the chief academic officer in Dallas ISD. And she was saying, we're always changing the names. We're always kind of moving things because the puzzle pieces have to keep moving because the needs of schools keep changing and they grow. And we have to find new ways to like put titles over that. So tell me, what does that mean? What is your job? at Atlanta Public Schools. Right, so I am the first, as you mentioned, Chief Equity and Social Justice Officer here in Atlanta Public Schools, and I'm the first female District Chief Equity Officer in the state of Georgia. Um, so it means a lot just one being the first. So I'll start there, right? Um, uh, being the first, you know, people, there's a lot of ambiguity about your role. There's a lot of hesitation about your role, especially in the work and in the sector that I'm in. Um, coming into this work where folks are eagerly anticipating and relieved that this role is now here, while at the same time, there's a, a great, a large group of individuals who are against this work and, um, and, and, and are not in favor of this work. And just sitting in that space as the first to have to grapple with those tensions comes with its own um, set of responsibilities. Um, but in essence, when we talk about just an equity office in general, um, equity offices are, I like to think of them as like the triage center of, of a district. Um, our role is we identify inequities um, that are happening in a system, whether it be a corporate system or a public sector system. And we, re uh, and we you know, triage those inequities. We try to get to the root causes of those inequities. And then we then offer some recommended prescriptions for how we might address some of these inequities. But we really rely on other departments and other entities in the organization to kind of bridge that gap between the implementation and the remedy that we prescribe. So I like to share with people, we don't do the work, right? We're not the teachers, we're not the principals, we're not the people who build the buildings. Our job is to help those folks do their job through a lens of equity and build their capacity and stamina to do this work. And when they're confronted with complex equity challenges, help them triage those challenges and figure out how they can go about solving them within their fields of influence and spheres of influence. Right, so that's so in essence what we do. Awesome. So let me ask you a question on that. Um, think about last year. What was an inequity that you triaged and, and you felt like you able, were able to get to a, a better place? Right. 
Oh, there's so many. I know, right? <laughs> if you want to pick a couple, but just think I of know. one. Let that me comes think to mind. of one that um that I would elevate and share. So, okay, here's one um that we may need to actually circle back to. But um last year there were there was a, a lot of buzz, it still is, about like anti-CRT in the schools and um just some of the content that, you know, uh critiques of content that teachers um are teaching um related to the standards, but just you know, some angst around around what actually is being taught in classes, right? We all know that no school district I've ever worked in teaches CRT. That is not something that is taught in a K-12 setting. Um, but there was a lot of misinformation out there about what actually happens in schools um, in, in terms of how we relate our content. And there was an incident where, um, you know, a teacher selected content that folks thought was, uh, you know, controversial, um, if you will. And um, there was a lot of, you know, um, you know, just discourse about that in the district. So one of the things that our office did to kind of triage that situation is really get to the root cause. Because I tell my staff, people don't fear change, they fear loss. And so let's sit down with the parents who are questioning or who feel that this content is controversial, really understand why and what their angst is about this um, content, and then try to come to a resolution and offer some remedies for how we move forward. And what we found in that is one, that notification, Right. So parents value notification about the content that students were learning. We learned that we could have done a better job of communicating content on the front end and allowing parents to really think through the options for their children around that content. And then we also learned that it would be great if we put some systems and structures in place for teachers on how to really teach these types of controversial issues in a way that allows for diversity of thought and opinion, but also civil discourse and respect. And so from that conversation, we put together a guideline, a toolkit that's on our website now on teaching controversial issues. And it walks our teachers and our school leaders through an entire process of how to engage in conversations for content that may be controversial, but in a way that allows students to formulate their own opinions, thoughts, and ideas, and respect um, diversity of thought and opinion, um, and, and create a psychological container where students feel safe doing those things. And that would be a, an example that I would elevate uh, from last year. It is so interesting listening to you talk about this process because I think, you know, what I am at, like automatically imagine are all the book bans, right? That parents right. are showing up very upset about either the books that are being taught or the content that's being taught in their classrooms. And what you see are very upset people in board meetings yelling and crying and all of those things. And what I hear you say is actually we welcomed those people, whether they were crying or yelling, I don't know, but parents, we welcome these parents in and be, even if we didn't agree with what they were pushing back on, there was learning for us to do. Right. right. Um, how hard is it to get to that place though? Right. From a parent who's, you know, maybe crying over someone teaching number of the stars or whatever it is to, all right, what can we learn? How, do, how, do, how does that process work for you and how hard is it? Right. Um, that process um, is is challenging, right? Because once again, people come in and, and, the, and we're in very politically polarizing environment right now. And that's very emotionally charged. And so first you have to get through the emotions. People are coming in to your point with the crying, the yelling. I mean, this situation escalated all the way up to where we were on Fox News about this situation. Wow. Um, and so it got to that level, right? Um, where it's just, you know, Know, becoming national news and attention. And for me, you have to get through all of that noise. As I mentioned, people don't fear change, they fear loss. And I've never met a parent ever who said to me, I want great 
teachers just for my kids and no one else's. I've never met someone to say right. that. I'm not, that's not to say they're not out there, but I've never met them. And this is my fourth school district. And so people genuinely have good intentions. They genuinely want the best for their kids. And so it was important for me to elevate that to families that, you know, I get it. I'm not viewing this comment as divisive. I'm not viewing this comment as racist. I'm not in this particular instance, it would have been considered, could have been considered homophobic because the book in question was about um, same sex couples, um, not same sex couples. I'm sorry. It was about um, it. The book was about a family. It was a children's book about the different diversity of families um, in schools and schools districts. And, you know, the parents had some angst about that. But I let the parents know that, you know, th I, this is not about labeling you and giving you a name and criticizing you and giving you a name. This is about really understanding where you're coming from. And I right. start with myself because this, this work is human centered, right? I'm a parent. I get it. I have children. There are certain things that I want for my children. And it doesn't mean that I don't want the best for all children, but I'm going to advocate for what I feel is best for my child. So I wanted to first start and anchor us in that, that I understand that this is a conversation only and purely about what's best for your child and you advocating for what you believe is best for your child. And we can start on that principle. I also like to model my personal core values to this work. And that's modeling grace, seeing humanity and meeting people where they are, um, not necessarily where I may want them to be. And so I entered the conversation from that space and I shared that, you know, I have, you know, there's certain things that I have as a parent that I advocate and I go super hard for it. And I'm sure my kids' schools were like, why is she going so hard? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, so I get it. I get the emotion. Right. I get all of that. But let's talk about where we can see eye to eye. Let's really talk about, you know, what is really coming up for you. And at the end of that conversation, what we came to knew is one, I wanted to know we're going to respect your right as a parent to advocate for your child. We're also going to respect the right for all parents to advocate for their children. And as a public school system, our job is to make sure every child feels welcome, affirmed for who they are and who their families are in the school. Um, and it, as a society, that's what it's about, right? We are a democracy made up of a diverse tapestry of people from different backgrounds races, orientations. And our job as a public in, as leaders in the public sector is to foster citizens who have a deep appreciation and respect for that diverse tapestry. And that they understand that when we say justice for all, it really means justice for all. And we may not agree on what who and how and the, the, the details of that, but we could at least agree that everyone deserves justice. Everyone deserves to feel appreciated. Everybody deserves to feel affirmed in the environment. And where do we need to meet in the middle in order to make that happen? And the parent actually elevated that, you know, it wasn't necessarily that they didn't agree with the lifestyle or anything. They just wanted to be able to have the conversation with their child. Right. Uh, uh, and, and have that conversation, not the school. And I said, okay, so what I took from that conversation was notification. So if we had notified the parent in advance with the syllabus or with the, a book list, they could have had that conversation before we had the conversation. So I'm going to note that. So these are the things that I'm noting as we're going through the conversations of where our interests can converge. And I try to always look for interest conversions because this work, it, we're human beings. We're imperfectly 
perfect. Um, and we have to accept that about one another and give each other grace to grow. And I asked that they give me grace to grow. And I said, I'm going to also extend and expect grace for you to grow. And we're going to talk about how we move forward in this conversation in a way that's in the best interest of not only your child, but all of the children that Atlanta Public Schools serve. And that's kind of how we got there. And just me leaning into my core values of how I do this work and approach this work. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of things to take from this. So, you know, like I think you never realize as a mother just how intense you're going to be about your children until you have them, right? I have three-year-old twins. And if you'd asked me if I was going to be one of those moms who showed up at school, I would have told you no. And now there are days where I am the mom showing up at school and I have some questions. So I know that feeling and I love that you lean in and, and can see that, you know, consistency in all parents, right? Um, but you are mentioning a couple of things. You, I've heard you say now, like the word controversial and political climate and some things that are, are like divisive, right? And we've had a few superintendents on lately who, when I asked them the difference between being a principal and a superintendent or a teacher and a superintendent or whatever, or even just the top job, the first thing that every single one of them, they say, the politics are really hard. The politics are really hard. And I look at you in the role that you are stepping in for the first time. This job is the first time that's ever existed. It's like you're jumping into it feet first. Like everyone else is like, man, I, politics, I'm going to walk the other way. And you're like, give it to me. Let's go for it. Tell me, like, what is it about you? What is it about this job that helps you kind of drive in that way? Because it's not easy. Well, one, I, I appreciate you recognizing that it's not easy. Um, you know, uh, what what it is what it is about me? It, I will start with me, and then I'll start with the roles. So um, so equity work is just in my DNA. I've been leading for equity in every role that I've been in um, before. It was intentionally labeled equity you know, in DEI right. work. Um, I went through and I had the privilege of going through the UCLA Center X program, which was a social justice type of teacher preparatory program. And this was back in the early 2000s and it was created in response to the LA riots and to really develop teachers to go into um, LA neighborhoods, uh, particularly in the south of LA, and really bring about social justice in schools through education. And so I came into education with a mindset orientation <laughs> of like, okay, I'm going in to be a change agent, right? Um, so, and I didn't know it wasn't called equity then, it was called like social justice, but I was doing DEI work as a teacher, didn't even know that that's what that was. So for me, it just is ingrained into how I show up as an educator. I'm always going to do and be an objective voice for all children. Um, I started off as an ESOL teacher in Los Angeles Unified School District because at that time, that's where the need was. Um, we had large students who didn't, who spoke English as a second language. And um, at that time, California had banned bilingual education. And so I said, you know, no, this isn't right. Uh, these students deserve to have their needs met so that they can thrive and be successful. And so I went to get certification to go where the need is. And I've always chosen to take positions that elevate where the need is. Um, and I chose to be in this role, particularly in the South um, and particularly in Atlanta, because that's where the need is. The South has some of the largest academic achievement gap across subgroups out of any region in the country, but they also have the most diverse schools and populations out of any place in the country. And so if we can get it right here in the South, we can literally be a model for the world for how people of just diverse backgrounds and um, diverse 
everything come together to really make change for children. And so I wanted to roll up my sleeves and get in the work and support in that effort because I really do think we, the South has something to say, as Andre Thousand said. <laughs> and, um, and we do. Like you look at Mississippi is improving reading scores across the board. And now we have equity work here in Atlanta and in Georgia. And, and we are people are rolling up their sleeves to do it. And if we can get it right here in the South where we have the most diversity in our schools, we can be a model for how other people can get it right and maybe more homogenous and less diverse settings. Um, but I will name, it is difficult. Um, when I first showed up to this role, I was getting threatening, anonymous threatening letters, um, anonymous threatening phone calls. I had to have my phone call screened, my mail. Um, you know, I, I frequently get harassed on social media um, and, you know, all, all the things <laughs> um, that come that come with that. Um, and so I, it doesn't come without a great deal of stress. Um, and what what I've taken from that is that, you know, it, the way I've been able to have longevity in this role, because this is also the shortest tenure chief executive level role in any district. It's even the tenure of a chief equity officer is even is shorter than the tenure of a superintendent. superintendent. So, and it's because it's a great deal of stress. It's a great deal of trauma that you get with this role. Your family, my family was terrified at that time when I started. So you're dealing with a lot. And I've had to show up in this role, unlike any other leadership role that I've ever had to show up in. And I have to constantly sit in a space where I make people around me uncomfortable. And that makes me uncomfortable. I'm naturally a relationship builder, but I have a role that's literally a kill the messenger role. Like I'm here to shine a light on the the inequities <laughs> and the things, the unfavorable information that, you know, folks may sometime not see or maybe discomfortable talking about or uncomfortable talking about. And so the role requires me for me to create discomfort and to create tension. And so it becomes a kill the messenger. Like we want to relieve this tension. So we want to, you know, they target you as the right. messenger instead of looking at the message that you're sending. So and you risk your professional reputation with your colleagues, your superiors, because you sometimes have to challenge your peers and your, even your superiors sometimes in this role. And so it's a unique space to sit in, but you recognize the outcome and the benefit that it has on children. So let me ask you two questions. The first question I have is the first thing you said is we're going to be like the South is going to be where the, the model for everyone else. And then the second thing you said is, and also I've dealt with threats on my social media and all of these things. How do you keep that perspective of hope despite the things that are also happening to you personally? Right. Um, my daughter says something to me recently um, that kind of echoes what grounds me. Um, the first is she said, this must be how Martin Luther King's family felt. Um, wow. Yeah. And that, I'm, I don't want to, so I'm holding it in because there's a lot happening right now. But um, so, yeah, she said that, um, you know, and, you know, because some of these people are, get to that level where they start attacking my family on, on different platforms, right? And so... But what gives me what she what gave me hope is what she said after that. She said, but I recognize that his family made a sacrifice so that we could be here today. And so that is what like gives me hope. Like my family gets it. They're like, we're this is a sacrifice we're making for children we'll never see. 
for individuals whose lives we'll never know that we we've touched. Um, we that's that's tremendous. That's a tremendous weight into who much is given, much is required. I, I'm a woman of faith, and for me, education is really how I put my faith into action in this world and how I leave my imprint in making this world a better place. And it did my my the the, the being that I believe in never said it was going to be easy. In fact, every example that I've ever seen dictates and shows that it's hard. Whether you're talking about Martin Luther King or whether you're talking about Jesus Christ, most people who have come in to give a message about something that is challenging the status quo is always met with great opposition and resistance. And I happen to be in a city where I, I'm standing on the shoulders of leaders that came before me who did this exact thing. So whether John Lewis, Martin Luther King, uh, Ralph Abernathy, I mean, the list goes on and on of trailblazers before me who did the same thing I did for me. So I owe it to do it for others. Um, and that's not a responsibility that I take lightly. And that gives me hope. Uh, what also gives me hope, and I'll just end with these three things, is I make sure that I have rituals for myself. I have a sanctuary that I can go to. And I have confidants that can talk me through some of the more challenging times that I'm experiencing as a leader. So you kind of answered the question I was about to ask. I was going to say, so when you are faced with someone, I mean, let me ask, it's really how I really want to think about this is you have a, a someone who has attacked you online or attacked your family and their children are Atlanta public school children. What I heard from you is those are your kids still. Like you are still, it doesn't matter what their parents do. This is, this is, how, how do you keep that in, in your forefront? And how do you, how do you show them that that's how you, 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 you show up? I do it in what I say and how I model it, right? I, I really lead by grace. I mentioned grace, seeing humanity, right? Um, and meeting people where they are. We, this work isn't about baiting, shaming, or guilting. It's not about any of this, not calling people out. It's not about canceling people because human, we're human beings. Human beings can't be canceled. So like that's, that doesn't recognize the humanity in folks. And we all have places we need to grow. We all have blind spots where we need to grow. And so I'm able to separate people's actions from who they are as a person and give people the grace and space they need to learn. Um, I forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing. They're just sitting in a place where they may not, their experiences may not have illuminated for them how their behaviors may be harmful. And I try to hold space and grace for that while also hold, you know, setting what my expectation is, right? So if someone's becoming too toxic for me, I will block folks on social media um, because I, I just, at some point, I'm okay with disagreement and things of that nature. But I also, when it gets to be visceral and, and the vitriol is too hard, I'm like, okay, that's too much. So I do have those boundaries as well. But grace. I recognize that none of us created these systems and structures. None of us. We all inherited them and we all inherited this history. Our responsibility, though, while we're here is to leave our children with a better history and system to inherit. That's really a responsibility for us. Whether we're talking about climate change, inequities in school systems, healthcare, we are here and this is our moment to give our kids a better history and a better system to inherit. And each of us are at different points of that understanding. And it may be because we inherited this history, we don't know what we don't know. But my role is to educate 
and help people illuminate. And maybe with their children, if we give them the space and grace to have these constructive conversations, to grapple with difference, to learn to appreciate diversity and learn to appreciate when you just have divergent opinions, but respect that, right? Yeah. If we can train and teach kids on how to be those type of citizens and be civil in their discourse, because we're they're not seeing great, great models of that <laughs> right now. But Thank if you. we can do that as educators, we can give our children a better world to inherit. All right. I'm going to ask you one more question about your job, and then I want to talk about you. So right now, we're, school districts are going through a reckoning in that the ESSER funds are dry, drying up, right? Like the money that came from COVID relief is ending. And also, we didn't see the academic results we thought we were going to as we came out of COVID, right? We're seeing the kids are still really far behind. And so I think it would be easy for any district to say, we don't have the money. We don't have the time for equity right now. What we have time for is reading and math, and that's it. What would you say to those districts? You can't close outcomes for students without focusing on those students furthest away from your goals. Um, and so that was what equity work is, is how do you accelerate closing gaps and accelerate increasing outcomes from those students furthest away from your goal. Um, and so you may want to improve third grade reading scores, for example, but if you aren't keeping a key and targeted focus on those students who are furthest away from being on grade level for third grade reading, then how are you going to solve that challenge? <laughs> um, it's, it's actually somewhat impossible for you to do that. Like you have to be responsive to the needs of those students and really get to in relationship with them and get to know them to really understand what they need in the resources and supports that they need so that they can meet the goals that you have. And that's what equity work is about, is ensuring that every child gets what they need so that they can thrive and be successful and meet expectations. That makes sense. And, and I love the way you framed it. That it's not about, like, I think a lot of people hear equity and they automatically think about us a, a race. They think about a certain group. Of, but really, it's about the kids who are not achieving. Right. And, and that's who, and the kids who need to come along. I, I think that, I think that was a lovely framing. Thank you for that. However, what we've said is that your job is like the most controversial, <laughs> polarizing. It's difficult. You're often having to give feedback to people who don't really want to hear it. They, they're already taxed with a lot of things to do. And you're also like the flashlight of like, and also, hey, by the way, this is happening here. We need to fix this. Um, and, and you're choosing to do it in Atlanta, which we talked about is not an easy choice and you could be doing anything, right? Like I, if you look at your bio, you have, so tell me, you know, why you told me a little bit, but really and truly, like, why does this job matter so much to you that you can do it day in and day out? And are there days that you want to go do something else? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, so my passion for this work was cultivated during my senior year at UCLA. Um, until then, I had plans of di attending divinity school. And in fact, I had applied to Harvard Divinity School. Um, ended up going to Harvard for education, uh, but not for divinity. But nonetheless, um, that year, I took a course called The Politics of Education. And in that course, I was introduced to Paulo Freire. Um, and I read the text Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And in reading that text, I came to understand that the systemic barriers that often cause demography to become destiny for children. And it started to put into context a lot of my own personal experiences growing up in Newark, New Jersey during the 80s at the height of the crack epidemic. Um, and just some of the things that happened to me in schools and that I saw happen to my peers, it started to really illuminate for me 
why those things were occurring and, you know, what was happening. Um, and I learned about the power as well that educators have in creating a better education system for all children. And so that experience and the way I was just transformed from that learning um, combined with the faith and desire that I had to make a difference in the world um, is what led me to pursue a career in education. And then that year, I decided that instead of going to Harvard Divinity School, I would apply to UCLA's Graduate School of Education. And that education would be the way that I would put my faith into action in, 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 um, in schools and in the world. And so that commitment to that work is, is literally for me both the, like the spiritual um, and, and it's also professional. And Aristotle once said that where your passion aligns with the needs of the world, that's where your vocation lies. And I'm paraphrasing that, but I feel like that's a really great quote, like, because that's what sustains me is that this is the role where my passion and my, my drive and my why align with what's needed in the world. And, and, and because of that, it just, it keeps me going when, yeah. when things get hard and when times get tough. So, okay, so you went to UCLA Graduate School of Education and became a teacher in LA. And how long did you teach? So I taught for eight years. I also went to UCLA for undergrad. Um, okay. So, um, uh, but yeah, I taught for eight years. I started off in Los Angeles Unified School District. And then I went, came back to Newark, New Jersey, uh, where I was born and raised. And I taught there for, um, uh, when did I leave? I taught there for five, six years. And, okay. and then I also became a principal there, area superintendent, et cetera. Yeah. And how did that work for you? I, I, you know, we talked to a lot of people about how they became superintendents and what they tell us is either like they got tapped or someone they knew was, was going up the ladder and took them with them. How did it happen for you? You were a school principal and. Yes. So I, when I took the course senior year, I wanted to become a principal. <laughs> so I knew I wanted to go into education and I wanted to become a principal. And the reason why I decided to do that was because the one of the most impactful educators in my life was my high school principal. Really? Um, and this just goes to show the power of, you know, allyship and um, just how diverse folks can come together to pour into children. So I had this little short Italian principal named Christine Taylor of Newark Science High School. Shout out to Miss Taylor. She know I love, she knows I love her. Um, and she was my principal and I always got into trouble in high school and would end up in her office. Um, and she took me under her wing and really saw my potential, advocated for me. Um, I mean, Took, probably did things illegal would take me to football games and to shopping. It was just, a, she poured into me like a, a mom. And I wanted to be like Miss Taylor when I, I was like, I want to go into schools and I want to be like Miss Taylor. And so when I left LA, the reason I actually left LA is because Miss Taylor, who had mentored me, she still was calling me and mentoring me even through college, called me one day and said, Hey, one of your favorite history teachers stepped down and I got this job. Do you want it? <laughs> Wow. And so I said, absolutely, I would love to come work for you. So I that is why I left L.A. I literally left L.A. and then went back to teach at my alma mater. And I taught for my principal um, and I taught for her till she retired. Um, and when she was about to retire, she tapped me and she said, you know what? You need to, you, you're, you need to, you, you're, you need to go into leadership, like your skill set, your expertise, you need to scale your impact. And she recommended me for the principal pipeline program of our district. Um, and that's how I began my pathway towards where I am today. 
Do you know what I love about your story that I think will resonate with a lot of teachers is you knew you wanted to be a principal. But once you get in that classroom and you are working with kids and you've got goals every day, it's hard to remember that you wanted right. to be a principal. You know, like people teach right. for a very long time before they come, become principals, mostly because it's exhausting and they're busy and they got work to do with kids, right? And it's cool that someone was willing to hold up the mirror and say, hey, remember, there was another goal here. Right. And the, and the goal was yours. So. And I loved teaching. When I tell you I love teaching, I was, I love teaching. I some of my, some of my, I, I have a student who I love. I have lots of students who have gone on to do fantastic things. But one of the, a full circle moment for me was when I went to Harvard to work on my doctorate. And when I, um, but when I interviewed for Harvard, I came up to Harvard to interview the same week one of my former students was interviewing for a professorship at Harvard and we both got the notice he got the notice he got the job a week before I got the notice that I got in as a doctoral student and he ended up becoming my professor and he was in my 11th grade U.S. history class and so things like that and he's a history professor now and I, 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 he, I he knows this I'm like he has my notebook from his class in his office at Harvard and he talks about how that was like the seed for him wanting to go into history and so things like that just made me so excited. I didn't realize how much I would love teaching. Um, and I probably would have stayed in the classroom if Ms. Taylor hadn't come and said, no, I'm putting you in this pipeline program. Um, because I loved everything about the classroom experience and having that direct connection to children. And here's someone from Compton, California, you know, single mom, all the check boxes people have. He's now a Harvard professor in history, African-American history. So those things are very impactful and, and why I love education, but you're right. I mean, being in the classroom specifically, but education more generally, it, I would have stayed. I would have stayed. Right. It's, the, it's one of the best jobs I've ever had. So then tell me, how did it end up? So you go into the pipeline. Thank you, Ms. Taylor. And now you're in Atlanta. You're not in New Jersey anymore. And you're so and you're in the super and you're in the the chief um, equity office. How did that happen? Um, so I got to Atlanta. So my paternal family is from Georgia. Um, in fact, um, my paternal family were slaves of one of the of one of the founders of Washington County, Georgia, the Shepherd family, and they're still a prominent family in the state of Georgia. Um, and so our family histories are forever connected in that way. And it just goes back again to this this timeline and this history that we've all inherited, right? Um, and I knew I wanted to go where the need was. I remember in my interview for Harvard, they asked me, where, what's next for you? If you if you come to this program, where, what do you plan to do? And I said, I don't know what I plan to do, but I know I want to go south. And they said, why? I said, because I want to go where the need is. Um, and that was always my plan. I didn't know where in the South at the time it would be, but I chose Atlanta because this is where my family is from. My family roots are here. I, my brother's here. My great uncles are here. My aunts are here. Um, my family is going through this system. Like they're impacted by this system. And um, I came down here first to work for the governor's office of student achievement. Um, to work on a statewide teacher induction support program and turnaround principals program. And that, um, and it dawned on me, that was right before I started APS. And when I was asked to then come for APS for 10 months, it was supposed to be 10 months, and they asked me to stay um, and, accept, and I accepted this role. One of the reasons I accepted the role is that I called my dad to talk to him about it. And he said to me, he reminded me, he said, you know, it's 2020. And he said, your great 
grandfather left Georgia in 1920 to escape the inequities that you're now coming in 2020 to address. So it was literally a hundred years. I'm coming back. And that just was like, whoa, like that was the moment that I said, I need to take this job. I need to be in Atlanta. I need to be here. Like I, my grandfather left to, for the same things that I'm coming back to try to help the system get right. Like, so let me ask you a question. I liked Harvard's question. They said, what's next? You're getting ready. You're starting the 23-24 school year. Mm-hmm. You're talking about one of the things that you addressed last year. What's next? What, what are you addressing next in APS? So in APS, in the Center for Equity and Social Justice, yes. we are cascading our work down to the school level. So this we're going into our really our third year of existence here um, in Atlanta public schools. And our first three years, our theory of action was focused on systems level, integrating this office and this work at the systems level and bringing coherence at the systems level around equity. Right. Um, and we focused on that for the first three years. And as we move into this next three year phase of our work, our focus is going to be now cascading this work down to the school level, particularly looking at leadership development. And we are viewing leaders as our lever of change in schools. So if leaders are able to reflect on their identity, biases, assumptions, and act with cultural competency and, you know, foster inclusive learning environments and do all of those things, then our you know, teachers will be able to do things that so that our students can do things. So we are going to be rolling out some very robust leadership development programming in APS around um, in the, pro- the initiative is called Leading Equitable Schools Program. And we're going to be focusing on our leaders. That's exciting that you're kind of going to get back to the people that you wanted to be at one point. You were like, I want to be a principal. You're going back to the principals. I think that'll be great. Um, and I'm sure you're really excited for it. But I'm sure you also are you know, like it's, it's one thing that you're doing. I'm sure you have a thousand things that you're doing and you're also being bombarded with the questions of parents and whatever else is coming up. And I'm just so curious, like what, what is it that you are most hopeful about? Like, what is it that you're like, we're going to, I really do like, you make me believe the South is going to be the model for us all. How do you believe that? What's bringing you hope? Um, what's for me hope is that we are, we are already a national model for how to intentionally, sustainably, and explicitly deal with challenges to equity in education. Um, most recently I was awarded, um, the Championing Equity Urban School Leader Equity Award from the Council of Great City Schools. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) And it was an inaugural award and they, 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 looked at their member districts and they wanted to honor and recognize a leader who was leading the way and being a model for how to create systems of equity and dismantle inequities in school systems. And Atlanta Public Schools was chosen as that inaugural recipient of the award. So we we, we have peers saying that we're a model for this work, right? Um, in addition to that, yesterday I got news that somehow people in Poland heard about our work and want to visit us to see how we create inclusive schools um, in our district. And so we actually have are hosting in a few weeks a delegation from Poland. I don't know how they heard of our work, um, how they got wind of our work, but the embassy of Poland reached out to us and they want to coordinate this visit of folks from Poland to come and learn from APS, learn from Atlanta about how we're doing this work. So 
that gives me hope that we are doing something right. We're on track. Despite all of the resistance and the constant stream of resistance, I, I once again, I am in Georgia. Um, and, and what's happening, I, it, it isn't lost on me, the backdrop of the political scene and context that I'm operating in. But even amidst all of that noise, we people see us. People see what we're doing here in Atlanta and see what we're doing here in Georgia to advance equity in, in education, not only nationally, but now internationally. Um, and that's exciting. That gives me hope. That is exciting. Thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like all we ever hear about in the news are the controversies and how we're doing it wrong and everyone hates each other. And then to hear that other people are actually saying, actually, I, I can see the good and that it's coming from somewhere else. That, I'm, I'm sure it's totally deserved. And thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question about your role. So you... You, you get to sit in this cool position that is, you know, focused on equity. It is difficult in that you're often pushing against people. But if you're not in this position, if you're a teacher who sees inequity and you know it's inequity, like what do you recommend someone who doesn't have the, the privilege of your role? How, how can they get involved? How can they help? Right. Um, I feel like I had the most power to address inequities in my role as a teacher. Really? It's the it's, – it's the, violence and power are encapsulated in the funds of knowledge that we, we play out in our classroom. And so the everyday decisions we all make, no matter what part of the system you sit in, have a tremendous impact on how students see themselves, how they see the world, and how families feel welcome in our environment. So everyday decisions about what you teach or how you teach it, or how you welcome families, or how you interact with families. All of that plays a role in advancing equity or put creating barriers for children. And so is equity work is not one person's job and responsibility. It requires work from everyone, our board, our teachers and leaders who do the most important work of equity, our community members, business members, civic leaders, everyone's has a role to play in advancing equity for children. And so I just happen to be the custodian of maybe convening the, these folks um, and maybe setting a vision for that work. Um, but it is the work of everyone and everyone has a role to play in it. Um, even even the, uh, the, the clerk at the school, how they're answering the phone and how they're showing up for parents and helping parents, that plays a role in it creating a welcoming and affirming environment. So there isn't anyone in this ecosystem who in essence really aren't a chief equity officer themselves. <laughs> so yeah. that gives me hope, right? I, I, I just keep coming back to I always think, I hear equity and automatically think division, right? That is how I feel sometimes. And then everything I've heard from you is, no, it's collaboration. It's community. It's coming together. It's not about dividing. And I think that's something I'm going to walk away from this conversation with. So thank you so much for sharing like your values and your perspective today. We're running low on time. So I've got five questions that we ask every guest that we're going to walk away with today. Um, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. The first one's the easiest. It gets a little, well, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> so the, um, the, Podcast is called More Than a Test because at Amira, we believe that assessment should be done daily um, and we should always be looking at kids from where they are and how we can help them every single day. But every guest hears that title and thinks of something different. So when you hear More Than a Test, what did you think of? I also thought of is more than the test, but I thought of a, from the student perspective, right. uh, students are more than a test. Um, and how do we humanize the data? So just because a student is 
what we call below proficient, that's not an indication of that student's potential. That's not an indication of that student's genius. That's not an indication of that student's intellect. Um, they're more than a test. They are people and they are geniuses in their own right. We just have to figure out how to tap into their potential. Um, and so I thought about children and I thought about the story that data sometimes tell or not tell about kids. And like, how do we begin to shift that narrative so people can see the humanity behind the dots on the grass. I love that. That's great. Um, tell us one literary moment in your life. And what we mean by that is a time where you were with a book that either changed you or that you hold on to as a happy place. Tell us about you and a book and a moment in your life. Well, I shared that book. That was Pedagogy yeah. of the Oppressed by uh, Paulo Freire. So that would be my book that changed my life. Um, and what I will share is that in that book, Paulo Freire stated that education is a practice of freedom. And the, the first exercise of that freedom to me comes from the ability to access a quality education for your child. So I view my role as a systems leader from my takeaways from Freddie's work is to support families in exercising this freedom. And for me, the solution isn't about abandoning our public schools. Rather, the solution is to work as a leader in education to ensure that regardless of where a student lives, whether it's an urban, rural, suburban area, that they have access to a quality education within the public sector. And because of that pivotal moment with that book that I still keep on my shelf over there and I read periodically to re-anchor myself, um, because of that book, I've spent the past 20 years doing something else that Fred A elevates. And he says, reflection and action directed at structures to be transformed. And that's what I do every day, reflection and action. And I direct that action towards structures and systems that need to be transformed on behalf of children. I can't help but write it down. It's so good. I know I'm going to like go get the book later and like highlight it, but I want it right now. <laughs> um, I love that. All right. A piece of technology that you love. Ooh, a piece of technology that I love. I love my computer. <laughs> <laughs> I get your phone a lot. This is the first my computer. Yes. Tell me. <laughs> I love my, well, one is bigger than the phones. And at my age, I need to blow words up and see. So, um, but it's so, everything is right at your fingertips. It's like information and, and, and it is greatly pushing us to shift the paradigm, the teacher-student paradigm, even in classrooms, because we really have to move from that banking model of education where we are the conduits of knowledge and information and we just give it to children. Children can literally Google on their computers or even on their phones information at their fingertips. So it's pushing us to think through, well, how should we be instructing kids in this age? Because I can do everything on my computer and with AI coming out, you can do even more. So I just, it's just a universe in this tiny little for me is a laptop so it looks like a book but it, it looks like an electronic book where you can learn the world is at your fingertips um, and so I would say my computer I love it um the best advice you've ever been given Ooh, the best advice I've ever been given I've given, been given so many oh I would say this one only those who see the invisible can do the impossible that is oh. the best piece of advice I've ever been given. It's been the charge that I've set for myself as a teacher, whether I was dealing with children and trying to see their invisible potential. It was the charge that I've now used as I lead into leadership. Like, how do I envision a better system 
what does a better system look like for children? And and it's not here yet, but can I envision it? And if I can envision it, then I can do what people say are is impossible for us to do. Is what I bought with me into this role. I had visions for things I wanted to create to help the system be more equitable and inclusive. And my team has helped us realize that vision and make it a reality. And we've done things that people probably would have thought was impossible to do in three years, but we've done it. <laughs> and so that would be the quote that I would say um, is the best quote I've had. I have never heard it and I absolutely love it. Thank you so much. And let's plug it one more time. A book everyone should read. Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. <laughs> awesome. If you aren't picking it up, you definitely should be. Thank you so much for your time today. This was a great conversation. Thanks for getting deep with us on some hard topics. Thank you. I appreciate you, Laura. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.